oh, our executives are so uneducated, we have to train them. And I'm going, no, these guys are so much smarter than you are. They already realized what a waste of time risk management mm-hmm. one is. And you're literally wasting their time calling them to do this rubbish again. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Welcome to another episode of The Thinking Leader. And today it's myself and I talking with Alex Sidorenko. Now, Alex, I call him Mr. Risk Management. He's been in the business for over 16 years, working as a chief risk officer at many large corporations. He's been doing risk management training for over 10 years, He runs the Risk Awareness Week, a large conference that runs every year and brings thousands and thousands of attendees. He also hosts the online blog, Risk Academy, on YouTube, where he's got over 10,000 followers, and he's published two books on risk management. Also, why I specifically like Alex and getting him on board, and we've had a great relationship forming the last two years, is he calls himself the most controversial risk management vlog on YouTube. We're all about controversy at Red Team Thinking and how Alex is bringing risk management into decision support and decision making is something I want to touch on today. So Alex, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Marcus. And uh, thank you to the listeners. So Alex, I was reading earlier and it says that aside from doing the CRO risk management stuff, your passion and hobby is pushing for quantitative risk management and decision making support from risk management. Talk to me about quantitative risk management. What is that for our listeners? It's the only way to do risk management. And the analogy I like to think is astronomy versus astrology. And so the kind of the very quick history of risk management, and it's very interwined with the history of decision science. Probability theory is like 500 years old. Decision science is like 100 something years old. And you know, neuroscience and behavioral economics is like 70 years old. And then all of these disciplines have traditionally been quite complex. And whenever something complex happens, um, somebody, usually a, um, a strategy consultant or an auditor, hijacks the concepts, dumbs it down to something very, very basic, and then sells it to everybody and makes it very popular. And that's how this concept of um, modern-day risk management or ERM has been developed. It's basically somebody's taking different complicated sciences, dumbing it down, or maybe even forgetting the sciences existed in the first place, and uh, um, and just selling it as um, as a new concept called uh, called risk management. Um, and so, just like in the analogy of astronomy versus astrology, probability theory, decision science, and neuroscience, that's astronomy. Like that's you know things you need to send people to space. And risk management, qualitative risk management, is astrology your horoscopes, um, Mm -hmm. basically meaningful, colorful things that have no uh, (laughs) measurable impact on decision-making whatsoever. Sometimes they actually make things worse. So when you ask me, what is quantitative risk management? Well, quantitative risk management is that original risk management, which was meant to be 500 years ago. And then um, everything else is kind of not risk management, but we are forced to call it risk management because the regulators picked it up, the uh, auditors picked it up, the rating agencies picked it up. And in fact, in my you know, day job as, as the chief risk officer or head of risk or insurance at large corporations around the world, the, whenever somebody reaches out to me with the question, you know, give us something on risk management, without a doubt, they always mean something on this astrology. Mm-hmm. And not the, the the real quantitative risk management because that's hard, isn't it? <laughs> uh, be, well, yes, and because the this concept of astrology has been so far entrenched into the, the risk profession, people that ask the questions usually are not even aware, like genuinely not aware that quantitative risk management exists, and it's mm-hmm. basically kind of the, the the right way of of doing science. Um, so answering your question, what is quantitative risk management? It's well, it's what risk management always meant to be. It's when you yeah. 
trying to look at the decision and understand what are the different uncertainties around that decision. And um, you're trying to estimate, simulate um, how these uncertainties will affect the decision and how will the decision change if the assumptions, underlying assumptions change. Brilliant. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today, because that is exactly aligned to what we do with red team thinking and that concept of making better decisions faster. Because if you're managing risks for anything other than that, then why are you doing it? And often that that facade, if you will, of the term risk management, it's not, is it? It's pop it on a risk register. We've managed it. It goes in a drawer. We forget about it until the risk manifests and causes a problem because it wasn't really addressed. You know, we're not understanding how to mitigate and avoid these risks going forward. So I love that perspective of, you know, quantitative is what, what it should have been from the outset. <laughs> but it's funny how that it's lost its flavor over time. So bringing that back to the forefront, I think, is a great passion and definitely a, a great hobby to have. So, so, so my, my blog is called the most controversial risk management. Or, or I think it's called possibly the most controversial risk management blog because you know nothing is certain about the future, <laughs> and there's a high probability that my blog is the most controversial. Um, but I didn't say I didn't call it. Somebody else called mm-hmm. it, and apparently you are now considered controversial for trying to peop- stop people doing astrology. <laughs> and bring back the astronomy saying, well, you claim you want to go to space, but you can't go to space with horoscopes. Yeah. It, it's just a waste of time. Um, so, so yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating kind of circle that I've done in, in the risk profession. Because you're almost killing the sacred cow, isn't it, of the individuals who've been schooled profiting. and brought up on that and gone through that and obviously profiting. Yeah, we, I mean, we get that lot with, you know, challenging people to think. Everybody thinks they think. You know, no, we have thousands of thoughts today, but that doesn't mean that you are thinking in that critical, that engaged way that we talk about system one versus system two. And, and I guess it must be the same in the risk world where, and you named it, where people are profiting off of this myriad of risk management systems that are out there that are easily sellable into organizations that gullibly take yeah. them. And then you come along and uh, upset the apple cart. <laughs> yes, yes. Upset all the risk management associations, universities, uh, and... Um... How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's fun. The, the 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 most the irony, I think, of the whole story is that um, by selling horoscopes to risk professionals, uh, the companies that are selling horoscopes are making some money, a little money, um, you know, relatively low margins, and uh, they do it a lot. So it's kind mm-hmm. of low margin but big volume uh, type of sale. With quantitative risk, because you know, in my role as a day-to-day kind of senior risk professional, I apply quantitative, and I only apply quantitative risk management. So, well, we we ended up saving 13 million on just insurance in just a single year. So we we and wow. we we saved it in, um, I don't know, I don't want to underestimate it. Maybe five or six decisions. Mm-hmm. So basically different five or six different policies we renewed. And every time we renewed, we actually did the, the, the quantitative risk analysis, build the risk profile, trying to understand, well, what's the underlying risk? Immediately discovered that we were underinsured. So we actually doubled our insurance and sometimes tripled our insurance and still saved a lot of money because we were able to calculate the fair price of the of the policy and then communicate that to the markets. Um, so in a single year on just one type of a decision, we saved, you know, significantly more on quantitative risk management that you could have saved on qualitative over, I don't know, decades. Uh, so it, it's kind of ironic. People you know, blame me for killing their businesses, um, but I'm really kind of killing their you know, low margin, high volume businesses. And they're not, they're not benefit. They don't realize that they're missing out on this huge business opportunity that you know, real risk management kind of gives you. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, if they're, if they're selling the horoscopes for not much markup, what benefit is it to those buying it? They're buying a facade, aren't they? And they're not getting the value and the sort of numbers you're talking about there. So if you if you want to sell something, sell quantitative. And if you're yeah. buying, buy quantitative and make those better decisions faster and more plentiful, as you saw there. And, and that's how you get the high r- return on investment of yeah. what risk should be. You know, risk should be enabling you, as you talked about, you know, future-proofing, seeing what's coming down range, planning accordingly, and then having that ability to adapt and recognize when risks are changing. It's, it's the second time you've mentioned a very important point because for some reason, the, the, the horoscopes, the astrology side of risk management, and just for simplicity, I call it risk management one because um, it's always diff- like it's always too lengthy to say it's astrology, it's window mm-hmm. dressing, it's, uh, it's uh, profanity. 
it, I just call it risk management one to save, you know, to allow people to save the face. I'm just going, oh, wonderful. That's the best risk management one I've ever seen, uh, which just basically <laughs> means it's rubbish. Uh, and uh, um, what is interesting, the people that really push for risk management one, they kind of the lost the connection between the decision and the risk. And in risk management one, as you've mentioned, um, it's basically kind of we identify risks for identifying ri- for the for the sake, for the sake of, of dealing of, yeah. of, of of dealing with the risk. Yeah. It, it's always kind of the risk as the centerpiece of the analysis, and then at the end you mitigate the risk as if the risk is something that needs to be mitigated, disconnected from the actual decision. Because you know, depending on the decision, you could be needing more of that risk, mm-hmm. but somehow there's that assumption is that you have to mitigate it. Yes. Um, which is obviously not true. Sometimes, like you credit risk, you know, if you want to make bigger uh, bigger margins, you just mm-hmm. sell to higher risk customers. You you literally increase your credit yeah. risk exposure by making if you can make more money than the um, you know the, than than your underlying uh, losses. Uh, so so there's this lost connection between the decision at hand or the objective and the the underlying risk in risk management too, which is the kind of the uh, ast- uh, uh, astronomy, the science part of the uh, or, or of the risk management world, the probability theory, the decision science, the neuroscience, in that risk always starts with the decision. You know, well, that's the, that is literally the most common question I ask to any risk professional. They, they, they ask me something and I'm going like, well, my answer depends on what decision is at hand. What are you mm-hmm. like? What's, what, what, what is the frame for this analysis? Because if you want to have, you know, if you want to make it quicker, then there's a separate risk methodology. If you want to make it slower, different risk methodology, if you want more of that and and, and so on. So you're absolutely spot on that somehow down the process, we kind of, we lost this connection between the, the decision and the underlying risk of that specific decision. Like there's no you know, market risk or credit risk. It doesn't exist in the vacuum. It doesn't need to be managed or mitigated as a vacuum. It's only it only matters in the frame of the underlying decision and that you know, decision changed, the risk change. And that's where I think we've got to have this far more holistic perspective on all of these elements. You know, to me, and in the way you're talking there, risk is almost a lever and, and it's a thing that exists and, you know, risk will always exist in whatever decisions we're making, but whether you pull forward or you know, push forward or pull back on that risk lever depend is, depends on the decision you're making the outcome you want the, and goes into yeah. you know, speed, yeah. et cetera, time you have to do that. And it's all changeable. Absolutely. It, I mean, Taleb said it best. He said, we should really rename risk management to risk taking. Mm-hmm. Because it's basically like you, what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out how much risk are we willing to take to go ahead with that decision? And is there maybe too much risk for us to completely stop that decision altogether? Or is there maybe not enough risk for us to change the decision and uh, and yeah. seek something more um, volatile and hence more profitable? I think so, because I think the phrase risk management leads people to believe they can manage away the risk. And what I've tended to see in, in my background in, in big corporations, and especially in the banking industry, is what what becomes risk mitigation, which leads to risk aversion which is as equally dangerous as ignoring the risks. I think, you know, if you're trying to avoid risks at all costs, that itself creates risk because you, as we said, you just can't avoid risk. You have to embrace risk and go with it and expect to, you know, deal with it in different ways at different times. But if you are averse to that and not taking risk, then you know that your competitors are going to be taking risk and that's how people get the advantage. And you've got to take risk. You know, you've got to be in it to win it sometimes. And the more risk you take, the more the reward. But it's that balance of recognition of where you are on that sort of scale, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, the risk aversion mentality is always going to get you in trouble because in this day and age, you can't avoid risk given the nature of the complex world that we're facing into. Yeah, well, I don't think there's anything risk-free left. Like there's can't always be. there's there's always risk, and it, it's 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 fascinating, you know, especially in Europe now. Um, a lot of decisions have been made, you know, around the war. And um, you know, personal life decisions uh, for, for many people, and, and they always kind of go, you know, should I take this risk versus nothing, as if like there's no 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 risk on the other side mm-hmm. of the scale, and it's never the case. It's always like, should you take this risk or stay and do nothing and absorb lots more risk? Absorb another one, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you, you've got to do that, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, and I saw a great quote today. Something about if you want to get into a fight. 
you better have considered the escalation likely to happen when you do that. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's definitely where we're at now with what's going on. And you see that in the workplace, you see it in life. You know, everything we do say, there is inherent risk in that. And therefore, you know, think before you speak, as we often talk about, you know, think before we do. And do that analysis. Take that time to look at what it is I'm trying to do. What are the inherent risks in doing that? Do I wish to impose some risks on that and take excessive risk, as you said, to get into different markets, to increase different profit shares? We have to understand the risks that are out there and engage both our people in doing that and as well as the other mechanisms that exist to help us alleviate that often. Yeah, yeah. I mean, using the you know, decision science terminology, it's all about trade-off. It's you, you, you're taking risk against the reward and you're comparing, you know, risk of option A versus risk of option B risk versus risk of doing nothing because yeah. doing nothing is also not a risk-free thing. Absolutely not, yeah. And another you know, fascinating um, uh, research that I, I, I came across is that some a couple of scientists, well, some scientists, I can't remember, I read it in, in, in the book, um, have investigated how decisions are being made by executives. And this is pretty consistent with what I observed in my role. It's usually the decisions are binary. It's do this or do nothing. But in reality, you know, there's never two choices, you know, do this or do nothing. There's always do this or that or you know, A, B, C, D. And do nothing is like your option F. And comparing all these alternatives is just too complicated for human mm-hmm brain to, to process uh, intuitively. And in fact, there's a lot more research by you know, Philip Tetlock who concluded that in the fields that he studied, and he studied like 80,000 forecasts in different areas of life, and he concluded that very rarely, if ever, you know, intuition can outperform, consistently outperform simple mathematical um, mathematical models when it comes to accuracy of um, you know, thinking about the future. Yeah, absolutely. And that that risk decision-making process, we've come up with some, we call it iterative decision-making because, you know, and we were talking to Dr. Gary Klein about this and he said, you know, anybody who thinks they can sit in the boardroom and make a decision today and then go away, come back after the weekend and expect that decision to still stand on Monday is kidding themselves. They're delusional given this complex world we live in because, again, you can make a decision today and it may be the right decision, but tomorrow something could happen at speed. And that decision is therefore wrong. So you have to iterate. And that allows for that short-term looking at what's going on right now. Because as you said, if you look and plan too far, too wide, there's so many things, so many moving parts, it almost becomes overwhelming. And therefore people don't. They just put it on the register and stick it in a cupboard somewhere. Whereas if you just go short-term, and this is where the whole purpose of agility coming you know, into the play is iteration, experimentation, try something, yeah. make a decision today. Yeah. Was that the right one? Look back and reflect tomorrow. Yes, it was. Carry on. If not, where do we need to pivot to? So you, you have this iterative, iterative decision-making capability. Yeah. And from that, you create plans with optionality. So those plans are baked in where if risk A manifests, we pivot to B. If risk B manifests, we pivot to C. And you're delegating that capability down to the teams to make that decision rather than holding it at the top and therefore increasing the decision-making cycle. Yeah, yeah. Because you fail to assess all those risks or you're fearful of them, therefore you keep them tightly held and the decisions associated with them, which I think in this day and age, it's a ludicrous way to operate and lead. Uh, absolutely. And uh, this is, I've observed a few examples of uh, that iterative decision making. It was so powerful. It, it, it's, it's absolutely amazing. But you know what else amazes me in corporate decision making? Um, there's this, I call it trader mentality versus risk management mentality. Um, with the trader mentality, uh, the the management team or somebody in the management team makes a guess or a forecast or a guesstimate about the future. And like they guesstimate the you know, foreign exchange interest rate, they, they guesstimate mm-hmm. time to completion and like they guesstimate a number of things. But they basically guesstimate a single version of the future. And my favorite saying is the future is plural. There are you know, multiple futures. We actually don't know. Like it is... In my experience, it's ludicrous to ignore the, the, this um, range of possibilities in mm-hmm. the future. And so the trader mentality is basically you spend a lot of time trying to commit to a single future that you believe most in instead of the risk management mentality where yeah. you, 
it, yeah, and you you want something, and you kind of you fall in love with that version of the future, yeah. and then everybody is really surprised when that doesn't doesn't happen because yeah. you know uncertainty. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that facts don't care about your feelings, but we should really say <laughs> uncertainty doesn't care about your feelings exactly uh, e either. And that versus the risk management mentality, which goes well, your future is arranged, everything is arranged. There's always ranges, and at certain point, like there there are multiple scenarios, and some scenarios you will be fine with the decision you've taken today. But there are certain scenarios, if, if something happens, your decision suddenly becomes really, really bad, dangerous almost. Mm -hmm. And you should be conscious of you know, what are those scenarios? How, you know, how likely is that 50-50? Is it 70 bad scenarios to, to 30 good scenarios? Um, I once um, modeled risks for the strategic business plan that we had to present to the Ministry of Finance. And 99% of the scenarios were really, really bad. And I came back to the management saying, well, I don't think we should go to the Ministry of Finance with that uh, with that business plan because it's just doesn't it doesn't look good. And uh, um, it, it is amazing how the corporate world, you know, the, basically the, the theory of corporate finance, the theory of accounting, the theory of uh, just f finance and taxes hmm. or, or the management theory, how all of these theories have been designed around a single version of the future. Correct. You basically, you create one budget, you have one business plan. Sometimes they run sensitivity at the end or they do some scenarios. Um, but the, these scenarios are kind of more considered as a necessary afterthought. Yeah, because I it, know. Yeah, you, uh, you've, you've probably come across that. Yeah, exactly. And that sort of evolved for us was all these new ways of working you see today. They need new ways of thinking. And the problem is they're not. They're still stuck in a lot of the old ways of thinking. And as you talked about, especially when it comes to finance, you're still seeing, you know, massive focus on ROI, quarterly budgets, everything's driven by the quarterly numbers. And I did a quick blog the other day about that. So I said, if you focus on, R and just a little equation, you focus on ROI, people go down. Focus on people, ROI goes up. So we need to stop focusing on what we used to focus on in the 80s and 90s and, and the bottom line. Yes, that's important, but you improve the bottom line by understanding things better. And that trader mentality you talked about is brilliant. There's so much biases loaded onto that, isn't it? Optimism bias and obviously that, that this is the future we want, so we're going to go for that future. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, the, the, the futures are many. And we, we're working with a client yesterday, and the tool we were teaching them was alternative futures analysis, uh -huh. where you come up with four different futures, given the factors that are at play and how things may change. And it was great to see them that they presume there would be one future for them, and they put themselves in that quadrant. And you almost see the mental dismissal of the other three. But then when you start doing the analysis in those quadrants and they start to see that there are threats in there, but there are also many opportunities that they hadn't considered. And then what you start to do is get a hybrid journey that they create to take them down a, an almost blended future because they're now in control. They've seen the futures and they're starting to create the, the roadmap, if you will, that will allow them to navigate where they want to and where the risks are, where they're not. Yeah. where they wish to increase risk. And also, I think it's that confidence of doing that. I, I think many of these trader mentalities are because people aren't confident. And people aren't confident because they're not comfortable with complexity. They're not comfortable with ambiguity. And if this is the world we're now operating in, you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Otherwise, you're going to make these poor decisions. You're going to be relying on things you learned from the 80s and 90s. And you're going to be operating in this linear fashion oblivious to the risks that are out there because you're just going to be heads down barreling through yeah. with normalcy bias thinking everything's fine, nothing's to worry about. And then yeah, yeah. boom, something comes in from left field and changes your whole world. It, it, and it's, it, it's, it, it is bizarre what you're saying because it's, it's true, but the kind of the deep down, the underlying reasons for those is just fear and misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And this is what, uh, what, what I've discovered is when we, you know, when I was given responsibility for the insurance portfolio, I, I hired a couple of insurance guys that brought in like this all this industry knowledge, and they were very famous in the industry, yeah, years and years of experience. And they brought in all these hypotheses. You know, we should do this, and we should do this, and we shouldn't do this. And, and just for fun, because this is what risk managers do, I started challenging every single hypothesis that they said, and we just you know we back tested. For example, like we, we separated you know markets into A and B. We sent different documents, basically backtested almost every hypothesis that they came with from the industry, which was best practice in the industry. Almost every hypothesis proved to be wrong. 
completely wrong. And in fact, we would have lost so much money, like millions, if we uh, if we followed the industry advice. Um, but what 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 was what was fascinating is that um, whenever I kind of started challenging the other people in the market, they always come up with the same uh, the same excuses or fears that uh, you you describe is that they they want a single version of the future they want uh, something done in a particular way um, because it makes um, you know more money that way and we've actually went ahead and tested their fears because they literally they would say like oh you know don't hire you know two brokers at the same time because they will compete and they will ruin the markets and the, uh, you will it will be much more expensive for you. Well, we literally went ahead and tried that, and every single time we tried that, we actually proved that their fear was completely unfounded. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it's kind of the separate you know level of decision. You know, are they trying to deceive me, or are they genuinely that ignorant or incompetent? Um, but the uh, but but the discovery for me was that most of the fears that I hear people uh, say is that, you know, for example, um, what, one of the, and what, what triggered that thought in my mind was something you said, that fear of complexity, you know, thinking in ranges, seeing distributions, you know, see, seeing multiple scenarios, um, which is bizarre because when I see multiple scenarios, I feel extremely calm. It mm-hmm. actually reduces the fear. When you see that there is no, no, kind of single bet that you place in your life on, but in fact, there are multiple options and you're equally prepared for whatever options fall out. And in fact, you don't care what happens with the future because you're prepared for every uh, instance and you even have a plan B, you know, a plan C, a plan D backup if everything fails. Um, You feel so much more comfortable. So the people that are scared of complexity are just lazy because they probably haven't you know, down the complexity to realize how much it reduces fear, not induces, um, uh, not not induces it. So it's it's interesting that we we're still kind of the management theory is still filled with those. I don't know what are they wives' tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, urban but, myths and yeah, yeah. urban myths. Yeah. Basically, literally urban myths that have absolutely no foundation, and we've proved most of them wrong. Um, and we just kind of go along saying, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. But yeah. no, they're not. They're not right. No. So you heard it here, listeners. If you're fearful of complexity, if you're listening to all wives' tales and urban myths, you're just lazy. We told you this was going to be controversial. Alex, <laughs> it's been a great first half. Let's take a break and we'll come back shortly. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Great. Welcome back. Had a great discussion during the break, and we're here to talk more about risk management with Alex Sidorenko, who I also wanted to mention just to validate Alex's credentials. He was the risk manager of the year in 2021, and that was from FIRMA, the Federation of European Risk Management Association, and RIMS. Was that for the Risk and Insurance Management Society? So Alex has got some clear credentials. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on, on top of saving uh, $13 million and reporting that back to the shareholders, um, I, I went ahead and submitted a couple of applications to the different risk competitions, and um, I was very lucky to be selected the, the best risk manager in Europe um, uh, by Firma. And we received um, RIMS was particularly fun. It's basically the biggest uh, US risk management and insurance mm-hmm. association, uh, and it was fun because I applied for a different category, or at least I think I did, um, and. I, they probably didn't feel right giving it to a non-US business because our US uh, um, subsidiary is relatively small. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are European. We were a European business at the uh, at the time, and um, they I think they really created a special category. Literally made up a category <laughs> to give us Brilliant. an award, and it was like the the best uh, risk management implementation in Europe, or so international best international implementation. Just so they didn't upset the American card, right? Love yeah, that. yeah. Um, because the, well, the case was 
so solid that mm. I think they felt bad to not acknowledge it in any way yeah. because that that would just be strange because you know what we've done was absolutely groundbreaking for the risk profession. Um, but then they also couldn't really give like the local US award yeah. to the European business. Awesome. I remember that my daughters got invited out. They were cheerleaders in the UK and their coach knew somebody at a big US cheerleading school and they got invited across to compete in the US in Florida. So they all flew out there, you little girls going, where are we going? And they won it. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> Beating the Americans on their own soil at their own game, which is fantastic. So obviously we have the best of the guests on our show. Alex is absolutely number one in the risk management world, hence why I call him Mr. Risk Management. So this should be an easy question for you, Alex. What are the top three mistakes that you see organizations making with regards to risk management today? Um, I mean, where do I start? I can think of like 33. Um, okay, we'll, the... we'll run a three-hour show today. Let's <laughs> yeah. go for it. Um, let, let, me, let me see. Well, the, the, I think the, the biggest... Risk, the, the biggest mistake organizations make is thinking that risk management one or astrology, astrology, I, you know, in English, uh-huh. I keep forgetting which one is which. Astrology yeah. is the horoscopes. Uh, thinking that risk management one is all there is. Uh, and basically doing, because doing the risk management one, doing the astrology is really easy. Like you get a risk management policy, risk management framework, risk appetite statement, risk register, couple of risk reports, you know, you assign risk owners and you you, know, you do some mitigations. Um, yeah, like, I, I'm not kidding. I, I, I've done that. I, a couple of organizations back, I um, I was hired to do it quick, quickly, fix the risk management one, and then kind of I was given mandate to integrate into decisions and change how investments were made and change how budgeting uh, worked and how performance was risk adjusted. And But I had to do risk management one. Literally it took me two months. To get everything out mm-hmm. of the way, it's like it's that simple. audit ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, and you know, you, you have no idea how how right you are. I literally had a folder. That's probably why you got the call, was it? Audit's coming. Yeah, I, I literally had the, the the folder. Well, yeah, it was actually the prosecution office. Um, um, I, I had the folder that I could give to anybody with just all flashy, you know, risk management things. Um, and I think the biggest mistake organizations are making they're thinking that's it, like you 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 buy us some protection or leeway against the auditors and the state auditors and the tax office and the regulators and the mm-hmm. um, and, and some other external parties. Um, and then they just stop. And they're thinking, well, we've done that. And now re kind of redoing that, like any, you know, any junior employee can re kind of continue, continue the process once it's set up. And they're thinking like, this is it. Like the, the value actually turns out, like it turns out risk management is actually a flop or a fad mm-hmm. because you've done that. And you know, this is the, the, this is the hint. And I know I'm deviating. I'll come back to the three no, questions. Keep going. Um, but this is, this is the hint that you know, some risk managers are so thick. They don't get the hints because almost immediately senior executives begin to ignore them. Whenever they call them to do a risk workshop, like they, they just, yeah. they really push back on risk management one. And all of these risk managers that are focusing on risk management one, they're going like, oh, our executives are so uneducated, we have to train them. And I'm going, no, these guys are so much smarter than you are. They already realized what a waste of time risk management mm-hmm. one is. And you're literally wasting their time calling them to do this rubbish again. Because, you know, to update the risk register, I can do it in my, like in my office in an hour. I don't need to have a workshop with executives and spend a lot of time. It is, and you know, with ChatGPT, I was making a joke on LinkedIn uh, recently. ChatGPT can write any yeah. risk management one document in seconds. Any, I've tried it. Risk appetite statements, policies, framework. Yeah. You, 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 you think about it. Any risk management one, it can write. And this is the sad realization that ChatGPT has been trained on risk management one. So if you ask it about risk management, it will always give you a wrong answer mm-hmm. because it's only been trained on risk management one because risk management one, it's like this plague. It's just overtaken the world of risk yeah. management. You have to search. Easy. So yeah. yeah, exactly. Cause it's easy. Everybody, like, you know, I, I, I meet so many risk managers. I'm going like, Oh, how do I become, you know, upgrade my skills? I'm going, well, you do math. And they're going, yeah. oh, well, we've never done math. I'm going, well, how did you Start. end up in the risk role? Because it's it's like it, it's like imagine b- speaking to a doctor who's never done anatomy or biology or chemistry. 
it just it, it's it's inconceivable. Mm. It's the same who with wants to be a surgeon. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Who claims no claims to claims be claims to be even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, so the first mistake is um, not kind of jumping onto the risk management to uh, world into the decision science into the quantitative you know simulations mm-hmm. trade-offs you know efficient frontiers you know all the tools and techniques that we have for simulating future and making better uh, uh, b- better decisions and that's um, that, that's one thing and I think the second uh, biggest mistake is that uh, executives are very kind of protective of their um, areas and um, any any decision, literally any deci- any significant decision. Okay, I'll I'll be more politically correct. Any significant decision um, can benefit and be significantly improved by the application of some sort of risk technique. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's CIA's assumptions check, or it's a decision tree, or it's an influence diagram, or it's a full-blown Monte Carlo simulation. Yep. Um, any decision on the planet, any significant decision on the planet can significantly benefit from the application of these techniques. Um, most executives and their teams don't have the competencies. But the second mistake... We, we know this. We know this very well. This is exactly where we come in. Yeah. Don't have, I mean, the, the, the risk angle competencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're probably competent in their own field, um, which is, again, n- no fault of theirs because they've been educated in corporate finance and it's just... A sad realization that corporate finance have been teaching people to build single case scenarios. Like there's no, there's there's no this um, um, multiplicity of futures in, um, in in corporate finance. And um, the second mistake that organizations make is that they kind of they stick to their guns. They don't uh, open the door for this new world of thinking of this risk thinking they don't kind of not not just not invite you know i you know, i i'm not that naive that somebody invites me to their to their food court i but at least when i propose something they could you know show a little bit more enthusiasm mm-hmm. and uh, it takes it takes ages to kind of build a business case and prove that this is worthwhile worth their while uh, and um one of the i think one of the kind of highlights uh, for me, was when we started talking to the head of procurement, and quickly showed that procurement effectiveness can be measured not through just the cost reduction, but the risk-adjusted budget, because reducing cost kind of is well, it's it's not easy, but it's straightforward. You can buy cheaper things, but you automatically add additional exposure because Absolutely. there could be delays, there could be counterfacts, yeah, there could the be just uh, lower quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So hence more incidents, more delays, more production stops. So it's it's all interconnected. And we showed them that reducing risk is just as powerful as uh, uh, saving on the or, 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 or on the you know just kind of direct you know bottom mm-hmm. line uh, bottom line budget. And they they would like mail like this is oh my god this is the new way of uh, thinking so we were invited into their processes and we actually ended up together working together and changing so many things it was um, it, it was insane the, the kind of the effect that had on the uh, procurement for a multi-billion dollar organization and um, the finally the third uh, the third mistake uh, organizations uh, organizations make is that they think that risk information is somehow too intimate to talk about and to share yeah. and uh, and to disclose uh, because I, I I still don't understand why. I mean, I can see, like at least, no, sorry, I can remember how they justified, but it's one of those cases where I think the fear goes before mm-hmm. the, actual, the, 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 the actual reality because they fear if they disclose the risks, then they will be prosecuted for the risks and, and so on. So the, the, there is a bit of that. But what I discovered, you know, speaking to even, you know, uh, state prosecution office and ministry of finance when we disclosed the risks they actually felt so much more comfortable about the decision that we wanted them to make or mm-hmm. to support and, and that actually kind of improved the business case so every time i've tried disclosing risk because you know, for example i wasn't for a long time i wasn't allowed to show our simulations and our scenarios to rating agencies because the, supposedly that would have uh, showed them that we have risk. And I'm saying, well, 
they're not stupid. They know we have yeah, risk. That's a naive belief. If yeah, that. but in fact, we could actually build a case around that, showing that, yes, we have risk, but A, the risk is actually much smaller than you think in your intuition, mm-hmm. and B, we actually have these risks under control. And that's one of the reasons how we uh, saved millions and millions on insurance, because we were actually showing we understand our risks. And not only we understand them, by the way, look, our risk is low, less than what you think our risk is. So mm-hmm. you are mistaken about understanding of our risk, but we also mitigate our risks in, you know, and we had like 50 pages of business cases on how yeah. we, how we mitigate. So the third mistake is thinking that risk is somehow this you know, sacred, sacred cow that you shouldn't speak of or show yeah. to anybody, um, which in my experience is, is a huge mistake. And that ties back to what we were talking about earlier, these these linear patterns of finance, these linear patterns of delivery and decision-making. But also it's that old-school belief that these things are dirty words, oh, we can't talk about that, put it under the carpet. Yeah. Rather than, for me, you know, just have complete transparency and honesty. Because then when you actually are that transparent, and as you said, the auditors or others or potential investors, customers, see how you're behaving. It's like everything, isn't it? When an organization makes a mistake, default human nature is to try and cover it up but you know and you know this as kids when you try and cover it up and mom and dad find out you get in far more deeper trouble than if you've just been honest and admit to your mistake so if there are risks yeah so if there are risks be honest about them and as you said i love what you said there about here's our risk and you know what it's not as big a risk as you think it is and here's why because people looking in will always assume the worst even if you're hiding it they'll assume even more so but if you're very open with it and show them and go that risk you think we've got is a real problem for us? It's not. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're managing it. Here's all the other factors we know because we've forecasted. You're in a far better place and you start to have that assurance internally. And then your operators, your your colleagues, your people within sense more well-being and confidence that we're capable. And those looking in from the outside, your investors, your you know, auditors, also feel equally confident that this monster is there. You're all aware of it, but you're dealing with it. And I think... That's yeah. a huge leap forward, but that's the mindset shift. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you, you, I think you, you, you're spot on with the kids. Um, even as little, you know, when we're little, we, we really don't appreciate that, that it is always, always less punishment if you're honest and upfront about something, whatever oh, that I is. I, uh, I got a chemistry set when I was young. And instead of going in the garage or the kitchen table, in the room, we had this white rug yeah, and it was cold. So we wanted to sit in front of the fireplace and play with this chemistry set. So we pulled the white rug out of the way and started playing with my best friend next door on the carpet in front of this fire because we were nice and warm and we're making all sorts of stuff. And, you know, you just poured some powder in some test tube with some water and all of a sudden this thing went volcano mode, frothing yeah, yeah, everywhere, yeah. bright yeah. orange, all over the carpet. And me and my friend had just sat there going, what are we going to do? And we just sort of ran in the kitchen, got some towels to dampen it, soak it all up, but dried it all up. And there's just this huge orange stain. Yeah. So I just pulled the carpet back across the rug, back over the carpet. We cleaned up and just left it. And I'm sat having dinner at night with mom and dad at the table. I'm thinking, she's never going to see that. You know, that, that naivety of a child. Thinking, <laughs> That's cool. She's never going to see that. And then the little other voice comes and goes, you idiot. She's going to vacuum in there next next day and she's going to lift that thing up. Then you're going to get a real shoeing. So I'm like, okay, I, I need to tell them now. I was like, mom, dad, I have to tell you something. And so they look at you thinking the worst. Yep. And then I told her what happened. Obviously, they were extremely cross, but it wasn't as bad as they thought it was going to be. And yeah. obviously, we got it sorted out. And because I told them sooner, they were able to get the right chemicals and clean it all. But it is that mindset as a human, isn't it, where... The default yeah. nature is to try and cover things up. Where, where do we get Never that? It's, I don't it's, know. It's so wrong. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to teach my kids that because this is just so important. I, I observe this behavior every day. Like It's, it's this initial dis, you know, decision to hide something. Um, so bizarre. And you know, I worked in the Eastern European countries as well. And, and there it's even worse because they, they literally go to method or their default state is not to make transparent but to make kind of deals behind behind the curtains. So like they would, for mm-hmm. example, they would go to a government agency for funding and instead of being transparent, they'll just make, you know, friends and they'll convince them to give them funding through any means possible, which is just so bizarre. Yeah, that's going to come back and bite you at some point, isn't it? That, and it's always not does. Thinking about. Yeah, I yeah. know, I know. Brilliant. Well, 
great, great three points there. Uh, and we'll, we'll come back to another three things I want to ask you about. But I mentioned at the intro, Risk Awareness Week. Tell me about Risk Awareness Week. Let our listeners know what Risk Awareness Week is, because I think it's fantastic. Yeah, so so Risk Awareness Week is I'm 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 still fascinated. It's been five years, and it's actually fifth year now, and I'm still fascinated by it. I um, used to speak at most risk management conferences, and uh, I've been banned from the biggest European one and the biggest US one. Too controversial. Uh, yes. Good. Keep and uh, uh, refuse yeah, to well, speak I'm... there again when they invite you back. Now you're famous. <laughs> um, so. so that you know, me, me being banned from a couple of big uh, conferences for being too controversial online, and again, you know, me being controversial is basically saying we have to go back to the roots of the <laughs> sciences, the underlying sciences, and stop being selling truthful. Horoscope. I call that truthful, yeah, yeah. So, not controversial. Yeah, yeah. And um, but that's not the worst part. The worst part is that ninety nine percent of the speakers at the traditional risk management conferences are all risk management one. And everybody sits there and listens and pretends that this is yeah. somehow normal. And I was just so sick. And this is why I was banned because I, a couple of like, so, somebody said like, oh, we need, we, we need to rename chief risk officer to chief opportunity officer. And I said, oh my God, this is like literally the dumbest thing I could have thought of. Yeah. Because you need to integrate risk into whatever the company does instead of creating this separate silo that supposedly now deals with opportunity. Anyway, it was just too stupid to comment. And, um, um, Every workshop was risk management one. So it was like, we use this horoscope and we use this horoscope. And hundreds of people were there pretending that this is somehow normal. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this is what risk management should be. I was so ashamed, you know, of being there. So anyway, I, uh, for years, because I've done a couple of conferences, um, physical conferences in uh in Europe, and we had you know, 300 people, 400 people, uh, but it's just too much work. I, I, I really didn't enjoy the process. And we always uh, only had risk management two, uh, two speakers. So I was for a couple of years, I was already discouraged with the existing conferences, and I hated traveling. Uh, and I was looking for an online platform. And f- finally, suddenly, I found an online platform. This was long before COVID. So you know, now you have hundreds of platforms for online events. So this was a couple of years or three years before COVID. And um, um, the, the it kind of it, it all connected. Mm-hmm. I, I had this desire, and I had a pool of people that I respected for what they've done for the decision science and the risk profession and, and the neuroscience. And I finally found the platform. So I created this risk management event and made it online, made it very, very accessible. I also didn't understand why you should be paying thousands of dollars for attendance to a conference, especially if it's just marketing speeches and risk management one. So like I, I, that just didn't connect with me at all. So I made it very affordable. And in the first year, I think I had 3,500 people participate from like 120 countries or 110 countries. And then the next year, and then I kind of, I just made it, annual exercise um which was fun because i made it on my wife's birthday during the day the week i made it a week because i had too much content um of my wife's birthday which now i know was the biggest mistake because now every single year i have to sit in the office and you know facilitate the whole thing and we can't go anywhere for her birthday um that's a big so, risk that manifested pretty quickly <laughs> yeah yeah so that, that apparently that wasn't a good idea yeah, um decision so making there yeah, but I dedicated the conference to her. Uh, and um, <laughs> the, the, the following year, uh, I had 5,000 participants. And then the following year, like 4,500. And then this year, 4,500. And then I kind of repurpose it and I do it in different languages. So I do it like the English one is every October, mm-hmm. every year. And then I repurpose it usually in different languages. And then the, when the war started, we did like a charity um, event with the free attendance, but like donations to um, to the Ukrainian refugees. And uh, um, so that became the platform. So now uh, it's, it's a platform that is easy to find. Well, you know, Risk Awareness Week is kind of it's it, it became quite a quite a big name in the risk conference world, so it's easy to find in Google. Uh, but it's basically 2019.riskawarenessweek.com, 2020.2021.2022.charity.riskawarenessweek.com, and it became this online platform where anybody can 
go on the website and watch the workshops. And they, I think the kind of the biggest thing that I've tried to do, and this is you know, the workshop that you facilitated and the, the other workshops, is that I, I try and not talk about hype topics, but rather mm-hmm. the underlying science of something. So, for example, yeah. we have a workshop on a um, an influence diagrams or a decision tree or like a stochastic decision tree or a building a stochastic risk profile, basically quantitative risk profile. Because you can apply that knowledge. First of all, that that those sessions that you know some Stanford professors or NASA engineers did in 2019, they're just as relevant today as they were in 2019. Because the underlying science of risk hasn't really changed; it has been kind of consistent over the last 500 years or so. And uh, um, whatever the next risk is, you know, because it was cyber was the sexy risk, then it's climate. Well, the underlying math behind any of those risks is basically like a decision tree with Monte Carlo or an influence diagram with Monte Carlo or scenario, like a, an assumptions check with Monte Carlo. Um, the the actual technique that sits behind the, 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 the umbrella title is still the same. And uh, the workshops are specifically targeting the techniques, you know, whatever your next sexy risk, uh, sexy, sexy, sexy risk will be. So, so I, I'm, I'm quite passionate about that because they, we now have 150 workshops, most of them available for free, Mm -hmm. uh, 150 workshops that are just applicable to anyone, you know, the connection you know, on cognitive biases when talking about risks, the connection between decision science and risk management, the, um, uh, which one? Which one did you do? The um, the lost art of contradiction. The, the lost of art of contradiction, yeah. which is the, this powerful concept of somebody challenging the mm-hmm. assumptions that the decision team is proposing. That a fundamental skill for any organization, and it will probably continue being as relevant and as fundamental Always. for the you know, yeah. for, for, foreseeable future. Yeah. Um, so, so it's. Uh, it's that uh, it's that knowledge that you can kind of you know, dive deep into, um, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun. No, I think I think it's great, and, and as you, as we were talking about earlier, the beauty of digital now and the way you've structured this this platform. Hey, you can make it in October. That's okay. You can go there now, see all of these great classes, download them, watch them all. And that's just a database now that is building up year on year, and you've got five years worth now of absolute quality knowledge and yeah. quantitative depth behind it as well which i think is just a fantastic thing for the risk management and as you said you're making risk sexy you're bringing it back and i think that's what people really need to do is embrace this as a thing you know and get their arms around it and understand it rather than ignore it and don't mention it because it's a thing that we don't want to talk about yeah great yeah. i said i wanted to come back to three things so we talked about the top three things the mistake wise organizations are making Let's wrap up with what are three things that our listeners today should do regarding risk management at whatever level they are in their organization? What, what could people take away tomorrow and start to get benefit from straight away? Uh, well, what I'm discovering is that especially people in risk or kind of people trying to learn about risk, I think the biggest thing they can do is not read a book, any books that have a risk management in the title. Because that is almost certainly going to be a risk management one book. There, there so, are so every everything where you see risk management, it should be brackets one. Yeah, that isn't written there, but that's what it actually. That's what you say in these books are, is it? Most of the time, there, there are a few exceptions. For example, my free book, which is by the way very easy to find. You just Google free risk management book, and it's number one in Google. And uh, um, it's it has risk management in the title and Doug Hubbard's, you know, why it but. It, it, the title is why risk management is broken mm-hmm. and, and how to fix it. Um, but that's about it. The other books that are actually extremely valuable to learn and understand and appreciate what risk management is all about have nothing to do with risk management in the kind of modern day sense, because they're all about decision science, decision quality, making decisions under uncertainty, um, using uh, probability to estimate uncertainty, you know, even even CIA's uh, you know primer on decision making uh-huh. is better than most risk management books on the planet yeah. because it, it literally gives you like techniques you know devil's advocate assumptions check um, <laughs> contrary like all the different contrarian techniques um, that that is my kind of advice uh, number one if you if you want to deep dive 
into what good risk management looks like is, well, you know, start with risk awareness week, obviously, and watch the free workshops that are available uh, online. But then if you want to read something, avoid at all costs risk management books because they're, they're, they're deceivingly risk management one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's number one. Um, number two is uh, very quickly, well, you know, talk to people, uh, but very quickly discover and understand who's in front of you. Because risk management, there's either a risk management one professional or a risk management two professional. And uh, the quicker you realize that, the kind of the more fruitful the conversation will Mm -hmm. be. Because once you realize somebody is just risk management one expert, um, well, it's going to be like a conversation about, you know, what color is the horoscope and um, not particularly useful. And, you know, you probably shouldn't waste waste time on that uh, so that's um that was an important skill uh, for me i um i have two groups in whatsapp uh, that i am a member of and one has like 300 members uh, and that's every kind of risk professional in the country or like you know, most okay most risk professionals in the country and um i have a separate group i, I literally call it risk management too and uh, it, it's like 10 people uh, and they're, they're the 10 people that I go for real advice yeah. when, when, I, when, I need, uh, when I need it. And by the way, this is another um, th- thing about, I mean, this could qualify as a number three. Um, because I think this is the, the, there should be this realization in, in people's minds. Because risk management existed for like, you know, the proper risk management existed for like 500 years. And the decision science is quite old and, you know, the, there are two Nobel Prizes in economics, you know, Kahneman and Smith and yeah. uh, Teller um, for making decisions under uncertainty, which is literally what risk management is all about. Um, it's highly unlikely that whatever you can come up in your organization as your unique methodology is actually better than what the industry has published. And um, the, the the kind of the, the biggest value I got is just look beyond my industry, look at kind of fields. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why at the risk awareness week, I have, you know, military people, NASA engineers, you know, professors from all the kind of rel- relevant or relative fields of study. Um, because it is highly unlikely that you can come up with a methodology that is somehow unique and hasn't been done yeah. before. And, and so the biggest advice that I benefited from is just speaking to, uh, like, basically researching, finding the methodology. And mm-hmm. I, I kept sending my team, you know, whenever we needed to do something, I, I just send them saying, you know, find what somebody somewhere did, because I'm sure somebody approached that problem and they found a way, uh, a, a way to solve it. Maybe it's not a, a, you know, identical, but it's very, it's similar enough that we can, we can replicate. And in fact, we were able to bring most of the decisions and most of the problems that the executives wanted us to analyze to something that was actually simple and foundational. And that's why at the end of the day, you know, literally like assumption checks, decision trees, influence diagrams, Monte Carlo, and uh, maybe scenarios, like, that's about it. Yeah. Like that, that's, the, that's the toolkit that you, and sometimes you like you build tailor-made models for more complicated risks. And sometimes the regulator prescribes how you build the risk model to quantify certain things. Like, you know, for example, for credit risk, there's like literally a number of equations that you can use and for market risk as well. Um, so you just discover it. And, and even for uh, for um, uh, for operational risk, we started quantifying operational risk, something that not many organizations did. And um, But we had a lot of like the shareholders and the executives, they were all from banking and we wanted to use Basel. And we wanted to stick to, to Basel as much as possible, even though it's not directly applicable and it's, it has a completely different taxonomy of uh, operational risk. We still, like, the initial response was, oh, completely not applicable. In fact, Basel is really poor on operational risk. Um, only to discover that if we gave it enough thought, we actually figured out how to make the connection and almost completely replicate the banking approach to the chemical plant approach in operational risk. And it solved... It didn't, it didn't kind of solve all the problems, but it solved enough problems for us to use and then just come up with a different methodology for the kind of the unsolved bits. Um, so, so the third advice is just like that there are 
solutions and models and examples and methodologies for almost anything you can think of. You know, people are climate change. Well, that's not novel. And you know, cyber is not novel. Like any, mm-hmm. like th- that's why I keep saying in, in the comments on, on LinkedIn, like I can literally quantify any risk on the planet, and I can do it kind of quickly and poorly in this in maybe like fifteen seconds, and, and then I can do it properly in like a couple of days or a week or maybe a month. Fabulous. Well, three great top tips there from Alex for anybody listening out there. So if you're doing risk management, one. If you're doing the facade of risk and not talking about it, then I suggest that you search free risk management book and you'll find Alex's free book or get across to Risk Awareness Week. Look on the website. You'll find that on Google easily. Also check out Risk Academy on YouTube, where again, you'll find lots and lots of great quality content from Alex. Alex, thank you. It's been great. It's been controversial. It's been fun. Really great to have you on. And I look forward to catching up again in the future. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, maybe, maybe just for the sake of controversy, and you can cut it out if you want at the end. Um, I, I love your advice. You know, search for the book, search for the risk awareness week, you know, basically investigate what Risk Management 2 is all about, um, or just resign and make everybody's life easier. I like that as sound advice. If you are one of those lazy and thick risk managers doing Risk Management 1, just resign. Do yourself a favor. Do everyone a favor. Great yeah. advice. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.